electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. Welcome, everybody. I'm Alyssa Lee. Here's what's ahead. Stick a fork in the tech trade. That's Wells Fargo's new message to investors following this week's inflation data. We'll speak with the strategist behind the call on where to invest right now. Plus, Green Thumb, Green Stock Price shares a cannabis product maker, Green Thumb, jumping after doubling profits. The company continuing to scale its business in the U.S. will speak to the CEO about the state of the industry. And earnings exchange from pre-profit companies to American staples to high growth names. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on WeWork, Walmart, and NVIDIA. But we begin with today's market action. Dom, she's got the numbers. It Dom. is pretty green, Melissa. I mean, we might break a weekly losing streak, but still, today, right now, predominantly in the green. <clears throat> you can see there the S&P 500 up about 27 points, 46.76 the last trade there. At the highs of the day, we were up roughly 34 points. At the lows, up one. So you can see, generally speaking, positive and tilting towards the high end of things. Right now, one-third of 1% gains for the Dow Industrials. You can see 36.045 the last trade there. 15.824, three-quarters of 1% gains for the NASDAQ Composite. It's Friday, so here's the action for the week in terms of S&P 500 sectors. We did see outperformance overall in materials. Far and away, the best-performing sector overall over the course of the week. You can see they're up about 2.5%. Meanwhile, energy and consumer discretionary, the two, two of the worst-performing sectors, things are kind of still shaking out right now. However, that consumer discretionary trade was driven in large part by a lot of weakness in Tesla shares earlier on in the week. So that volatility and that Tesla trying to gain back some of its momentum to the upside playing out in that consumer discretionary trade. And speaking of consumer discretionary, Tesla, a big part of that story. Still, though, the electric vehicle makers, thematically speaking, over the course of this past week, have been real ones to watch. And not just because Rivian Automotive, the newly minted electric truck maker in the public markets, was up 29 percent in its first day, 22 percent today. Now it's up another 4 percent. And by the way, that puts its market cap for those keeping track at home here at just about one hundred nine billion dollars overall. But still, Tesla is the big dog out there, down three and a half percent. It's worth about one point oh three trillion dollars. Lucid, Neo, and Fisker, other electric vehicle makers still down in the day as well. So Rivian standing out right now. You wonder, Melissa, whether it's drawing a little bit more of that capital and attention from other parts of the EV trade into that Rivian trade. We'll see if that lasts. Back over to you. All right, Don, thank you. It certainly has been a wild week for Treasuries with yields surging after Wednesday's hot inflation data. Rick Santelli is at the CME with all the details. Rick. Yes, Melissa Lee. You know, you tell me, is this transitory or stagflation-ish? Here's a chart of University of Michigan sentiment. We're including our preliminary November read at 66.8 today, which is the softest in 10 years. And you contrast that with the highest inflation on the one-year expectations in 13 years. And this comes on top of already hot inflation data this week. And if you look at how the markets have moved, here's a one week of five-year note yields. Currently at 123, they're only up one basis point on the day. So on the day, we see some steeping, but on the week, on the week, they're up 17 basis points. And you look to the longest maturity at 30-year bond, 
Right now at 196, it is up six basis points on the day. So there's your steepening. But on the week, on the week, it's only up six. So what are we seeing here? What we're seeing is, in general, that the five-year, three-year, two-year to short maturities have been aggressively selling off. Now it's time to see how the inflation affects long-dated treasuries. And finally, the euro currency's 57.6% of the dollar index. And both are at extremes we haven't seen since July. 16 months. Here's a chart of the euro versus the dollar. And you can see the weakness. Now it's just a question of what's the big driver here? Weakness in Europe due to the ECB's policy outlook or the dollar's strength fighting inflation in the face of Fed policy that certainly doesn't seem very aggressive in terms of raising rates. Melissa Lee, back to you. Thank you, Rick Santelli. Well, as rates, rates rose this week, the tech sector fell. The Nasdaq, the worst performing index, down more than a percent, and a number of ETFs catering to high growth names also down, including the XLK, the iShares Growth ETF, the Momentum ETF, and the Dow Jones Internet Fund. Our next guest thinks it is time to put a fork in the tech trade. Let's bring in Christopher Harvey, head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Chris, great to see you. Great to see you too, Melissa. Okay, now let me get this straight. Just about a month ago, you were recommending technology. Fast forward a month, and here you are, and you're saying the tech trade is over. One month ago, the 10-year yield was approximately where it is now, Chris. So what has changed in that past month? So, Melissa, when you're looking at rates, you really have to look below the surface. And you have break-evens, which are inflation expectations, and real rates. And what's happened is real rates have gone down 30, 35 basis points. And they're a key indication of what the market thinks about growth. So the market thought growth would come down. To, to Rick's point, there's more and more talk about stagflation. With regard to the tech trade, we, we thought the market was going to bounce. We thought tech would lead the way. What we've seen over that time is semis are up 20 25%. Software is up 10 15%. Those are great numbers. We want to take that money. We want to recycle it into something more cyclical. We want to recycle it into momentum. And one of the things that's driving us is we think real rates have bottomed. And if real rates have bottomed, that's a key indicator that cyclicality will begin to work and growth in technology will, get, will begin to slow down. And so really, that's the key that we're talking about. It's not so much that things are going to be terrible. Let's take the money, recycle it, and the market's telling you it may be time for a switch from growth um, and, into cyclicality. Aren't semiconductors cyclical, Chris? I mean, you can make the argument but, that they are the ultimate cyclical trade. <laughs> No, Melissa, you're exactly right. So what we tell clients is if they're looking for something cyclical in the tech space, the communication space makes a lot of sense to us. It's underperformed. It has nice valuation and it can work in a rising rising rate environment. Yes, you're absolutely positively right. And we like semis more than we like software. We downgraded software back at the end of September. We did make a trading call on tech um, back in October, but we would stay away from, from software because it's really not um, all that cyclical. It's a crowded trade. It's a consensus long. And we think that's going to be one that's going to have a hard time working going forward. So it really sounds, Chris, like this is not necessarily a sector call. It's really a valuation call. You want to be out of the higher value parts of the tech trade, but you're willing to be in this quote unquote value areas of the tech trade. Melissa, I think that's fair. What we really want to do is we want cyclicality. We want momentum. We want things that are working. Overall, we find more of that in things like the communication space, things in, in the momentum space, things like financials actually look a lot more interesting to us. But within technology, yes, we do have a bias for more cyclicals, and that would be semis over software. So I want to get your outlook for next year. It's not very good, Chris. You think, <laughs> you think we're going to be negative next year. So what happens? What's the backdrop to that call? 
All right. So, so Melissa, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Um, so we are talking about an equity market meltdown. We are at 4,800, a little bit more than 4,800 this year. We think this is a period where irrationality becomes more rational. You're late in the cycle. The market has bent and not broken. Uh, underlying fundamentals are still pretty good. And so we should see a meltdown. But as we roll into 2022, what happens is if we do get that meltdown call, you're, un- you're, you're making the market or the foundation less stable. But what you're also looking at is growth decelerating. You're looking at tapering or the Fed becoming less accommodated with tapering ending and perhaps rates going higher. Um, furthermore, credit spreads are very tight, which is an indication we're late or, or getting late in the cycle. And, and typically when we get late in the cycle, you have multiple compression. You tie all that together and it just really doesn't paint a, a good picture. What we'll want to do sooner or later and, and probably in second quarter, maybe at the end of the, the first half of the year is become much more defensive move up in quality, start looking for some low volatility opportunities. Um, So enjoy the party while it lasts, but it's not going to last forever. How does inflation figure into that forecast, Chris? So what we think about inflation is inflation is elevated. We will have spikes. We're seeing some of those spikes right now. We do think that two and a quarter, two and a half makes sense. We do think there's going to be upward pressure on rates. And we think what Rick was saying before, the bond market is telling you very loudly stagflation. And the narrative is simply this. Inflation is going to eat into growth. It's going to eat into consumer spending and sentiment. And the Fed is going to be too late. So the economy is going to be slowing down when the Fed starts raising rates. And that's a bit of a disaster. Now, that's not particularly our view, but we do see things slowing down. We are worried about inflation. And I've never seen pricing this strong in my entire career. Hmm. I used to ask my client, excuse me, I used to ask my, my associates, Give me a few names where they're raising price. And my associates are now saying to me, just pick a name. Everybody's raising price right across the board. This is a very inflationary environment. This is something we're going to have to deal with for some time. And we do have to start worrying about it. We didn't have to worry about it this quarter. But as we go forward in time, we do have to start worrying about margins and the influence of margins um, with regard to inflation. Yeah, already seeing the impact on consumer sentiment. Chris, good to see you. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Chris Harvey. You too. Um, Bitcoin pairing its losses just a bit after the SEC rejected Vanek's application for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Bob Pisani is here with the details. Bob, why? Well, it's pretty simple. The SEC has rejected a Bitcoin application from Vanek on grounds that they have repeatedly used in past filings. They say that approving the application would not be consistent with the goals of running securities exchanges, that this application fails to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices and to protect investors and the public interest. They have repeatedly said this over several years. Gensler, however, as we all know, has already approved two Bitcoin futures ETFs on the grounds that a futures ETF exists in a so-called regulated space, whereas exchanges that would operate a pure play Bitcoin ETF do not, at least they don't yet. And that's the heart of this whole problem, Melissa. Gensler does not believe he has clear authority to regulate aspects of the crypto world that he needs to police a Bitcoin ETF. Okay, so when is he going to get it? And that's the problem. Nobody knows. It's not clear. Given there are so many agencies potentially involved, and not just the CFTC, but even the Treasury Department, it's it's unlikely the SEC will simply be able to begin a big power grab and simply claim authority over all the coins in the world and all the crypto exchanges without some kind of objections from other agencies. So most feel national legislation is going to be necessary. 
But who knows when that might happen? We just don't know. In the meantime, there are many other Bitcoin ETFs coming up. They, too, likely will be rejected. The only good news for Bitcoin enthusiasts, of course, is that the Bitcoin futures ETF has done very well. It's gathered over $1.2 billion in assets. It's had very healthy trading, but that is very small comfort to the crypto enthusiasts who are going to be bitterly disappointed. The Gensler, who taught crypto at MIT, is not exactly seeing things the way they do, Melissa. Yeah, he had a blockchain course at MIT. Everybody thought he'd be a friend of the industry. And here we are, Bob. I mean, it really sounds like the way you're putting it, it, it's very unlikely that we will see this ETF anytime soon, if ever. Yes. Well, until there is regulation, here's the here's it's a very simple problem. Gensler has been consistent. In fact, his predecessor was, too, very consistent. We don't control the regulation. We need regulatory authority. If we make a power grab, CFTC, other agencies are going to object. We need to sort this out. Who's in control of what right now? If you believe that is the primary issue, and it is, they've made it very clear, then they're not going to do anything until they get that control. Therefore, I think I have no, no people who think it could be years before this happens. Now, I hope not, because we need national legislation. We need the National Crypto Act to clearly delineate where we want to go uh, with with Bitcoin, where we want to go with crypto in general. But it seems like we can't even pass legislation to raise the debt ceiling. This is a major, important problem for the country. And I think the crypto people are going uh, frankly, pulling their hair out about it. I agree. We're way behind the times when it comes to uh, the legislation to match the innovation. Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. Coming up, the cannabis industry has high hopes, high hopes for U.S. legalization with more than 20 governors this week asking Congress to open up the banking system to the industry. How should investors think about the market? We'll speak to the founder and CEO Green Thumb Industries next. Plus, we're looking ahead to three names reporting next week across key parts of the economy. Returning to the office with WeWork, an inflationary indicator with Walmart and one of the hottest growth stocks with NVIDIA. Back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Green Thumb Industries jumping nearly 30% this week after reporting third quarter earnings and saw revenues jump by nearly 50% year over year as it expands into Virginia and Rhode Island. This comes as more and more markets are opening up. Marijuana is now fully legal in 18 states with major additions like New York and New Jersey. But recent skepticism from Wall Street has given some investors pause. J.P. Morgan even going so far as to restrict trading in some marijuana-related businesses. Joining us now is Green Thumb Industries CEO Ben Kovler. Ben, great to have you with us. Good to see you again. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. I want to first talk about what really drove stocks this week, starting from last Friday, and that is this leaked legislation, which would deschedule uh, marijuana. And I'm wondering what you're hearing about that, what the status of that is in your view. Uh, Sure. Thanks. To be really candid, I'm not hearing a lot. We're we're focused inside the business on the execution. And what's going to happen in D.C. doesn't have a ton of impact on the ground for American consumers. Uh, But the business and the stock are often not connected And I think that's what you've seen. So there's optimism. Uh, There's going to be a press conference on Monday and we'll be tuning in. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's I know you're focused on the business, but this could have serious implications for your business in terms of how you operate and how you are traded. Um, And and this sort of dovetails that that bit of news earlier this week uh, about some brokerages, some prime brokers limiting the, the trading activity of U.S. Uh, list or U.S. cannabis stocks, whether they're listed here or in Canada. Um, And I'm wondering, in your view, how much of the floodgates do open when marijuana is descheduled? Sure. It's a great question. And and there's always noise in the capital markets and banks and things like that. I think the key with Green Thumb is we've built the business to prosper independent of federal change. We are not waiting for the cusp of change in order to do something, which means serve tens and hundreds of thousands of customers every day with branded product. Uh, At the same time, the fact that Green Thumb Industries is not listed on the New York Stock Exchange does not make any sense. We're an American company employing thousands of Americans and U.S. cannabis companies should be listed on U.S. exchanges available for U.S. investors at places like Robinhood and otherwise. Mm -hmm. So as the federal government gets around to doing that, and we think first and foremost before banking and before listing should be get the 40,000 people out of jail who are in jail related to cannabis, uh, then things can start moving. Uh, but on the ground, the business is extremely strong, a lot of growth, profitability. We have free cash flow from operations, uh, and we're very excited about the future. Your margins are also outpacing your peers, according to a lot of analysts who cover you. And I'm wondering, what is a driver that, especially at a time when across industries, whether it be cannabis or retail or what have you, margins are getting compressed because of things like wage inflation and cost of transport is higher, energy costs, et cetera. How do you keep those costs in check? Uh, Yeah, certainly those latter factors are important for us. But if you just zoom out, we're investing on the verge of Prohibition 2.0. The cannabis industry is going to be a $80 billion industry in the U.S. And so we've been focused since I started the business in 2014 on the return on invested capital and how do we turn one into three into five and create that momentum. And I think you're seeing that start to begin to show up in our business. It's going to show up in where the capital is going and what's going to happen in the U.S. in 2023, 2024, and beyond. And in terms of the, the, the current term margins, which I think is your question, we are 100% focused on high-quality branded product that American consumers really like and can trust. In terms of understanding the opportunity, and you, you gave us a big number when it comes to being the next prohibition, Ben, how key is um, federal decriminalization or descheduling of marijuana to that estimate? For Green Thumb, it's not. Okay. Uh, look at a state like Colorado, where it's run rate, you know, over $2 billion now year in and year out. You're seeing state governors, Republicans and Democrats, in favor of huge state tax revenue. 
cannabis industry is producing larger state taxes than alcohol state taxes and massive job creation. So what happens in D.C., like I've said, is a trailing indicator. The real action is with the governors and in the states where people want jobs and American consumers want cannabis for well-being. All right, Bruce, great to see you. Uh, ben, excuse me. Great to see you. Thanks so much. Green thumbs Thanks up much, 8% sir. right now. Still ahead, Johnson & Johnson announcing plans to split into two companies just days after GE's breakup announcement. What is behind the move and why now? We've got the details. Plus, union workers Adir still on strike four weeks after walking off the job. Can both sides reach a deal before farmers are forced to pay the price? The latest on the state of negotiations is next. The Exchange, back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks on pace to snap a five-week winning streak after Wednesday's hotter-than-expected inflation reading. Taking a look at the Dow right now, we're up 127 points, just a third of a percent. S&P up by 27, about a half a percent there, and the Nasdaq is up by eight-tenths of a percent. Here's some of the uh, movers this hour. The Crane shares China Internet ETF KWEB on pace for its best week since January, though still 50 percent off its all-time high. JD.com, Alibaba, they're among the leaders in this group, with both companies reporting record sales from China's Singles Day shop. Event. Sticking with retail, Best Buy hitting a record high and on pace for its seventh straight week of gains, its longest streak since 2018. Shares are up more than 30 percent over that stretch versus an 8 percent gain for the retail ETF XRT. And shares at Johnson Johnson slightly higher after announcing plans to split into two companies. Let's get more on that story now from Meg Terrell. Meg. Hey, Melissa, J&J plans to separate out its consumer health care business, that's a $15 billion business, into a publicly traded company sometime within the next 18 to 24 months. Now, this, of course, are some of the brands that J&J is best known for. Johnson's Baby, Neutrogena, Tylenol, and Band-Aid. Those will all become their own separate uh, business, a $15 billion business, compared with the $77 billion pharma and med tech business that will be left behind. Uh, of course, that business has the high-growth drugs, from uh, prescription drugs, uh, as well as medical devices, which has really been seeing a recovery since getting hit extremely hard during the pandemic. CEO Alex Gorski joined Squawk Box this morning and predicted a further recovery in that business going forward. Here's what he said. We do anticipate that that pent-up demand will be working its way back through the system. We're seeing signs of that as we speak, particularly here in the United States, but also in Europe and other places around the world. And again, we think that represents a, a significant opportunity, not only as we head into 2022, uh, but in years beyond as well. 
More broadly, though, this move for J&J follows a lot of breakups within healthcare, kind of slimming down and really focusing on drugs. Going back to the Abbott-AbbVie split in 2013, uh, also that year, Pfizer splitting off its animal health business, Zoetis, uh, Merck in 2014 selling its consumer unit to Bayer for $14 billion, Lilly following suit, separating its animal health business in 2018, and GSK, of course, in the middle of separating out its consumer healthcare business now uh, after it formed a JV with Pfizer on that. So this is something, Mel, that pharmaceutical companies and these conglomerates really have been doing over the past decade, slimming down uh, sort of a form of financial engineering. But J&J says it makes strategic sense. Mel? I mean, it, make, it makes sense to unlock value, right, Meg? I mean, if you take a look at J&J's valuation compared to, let's say, a Pfizer, and I'm not sure if that's the closest comparable, um, but there is a valuation gap there, J&J having a more depressed valuation. So theoretically, it should unlock that valuation a bit. My question, though, is on the consumer business, obviously the slower growth business, Megan, as you outlined, some of these consumer businesses have been sold, not necessarily spun off as standalone businesses. What what do you think ultimately happens as a market want to have a business out there with Tylenol and Band-Aids, et cetera? Is there that sort of appetite for that kind of company? Yeah, it's a really great question. Does this live by itself as a standalone business after this? And what does the growth for it look like? It has been growing more slowly than the rest of J&J's business. I think on a comparable basis, it might still sort of grow faster than the rest of other consumer brands. Um, but I was just talking with Eric Gordon at the University of Michigan, who suggested that these brands may not be as profitable maybe a decade down the line as there's just more uh, online sort of competition for maybe store brands and things like that. And so it will be interesting to see sort of the future of this as it separates out. All right. Meg, thanks. Meg Terrell. Now let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Melissa. Here's what's happening at this hour. Mark Meadows is a no-show for his scheduled deposition today before the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack. That's according to NBC News, citing sources. A lawyer for Donald Trump's final chief of staff has suggested that Meadows would not cooperate because Trump told him not to, citing executive privilege. It's likely the fight will now go to the courts. The nomination of Robert Califf to be the next FDA chairman is already in trouble. Even as the White House was announcing it, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin announced he's against it. Manchin says that Califf's ties to the pharmaceutical industry would hurt efforts to contain the nation's opioid epidemic. Biden will need at least one Republican to get Califf approved and the almost evenly divided Senate. And Homer Plessy may be getting a pardon from the state of Louisiana if the governor goes along with the state board's recommendation. Plessy is often compared to Rosa Parks. In 1892, he intentionally sat in a whites-only train car to challenge segregation laws. He wasn't successful. The Supreme Court's Plessy versus Ferguson decision in 1896, it affirmed the concept of separate but equal. And in other news tonight on the news, a close-up look at Taylor Swift's challenge to the music industry. You're now up to date. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Coming up, the flop trade, the classic trade, and the spicy trade. We'll get the key numbers to watch and how to be positioned ahead of WeWork's, Walmart's, and NVIDIA's reports next week. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Time for Earnings Exchange with, us, with some of the big names set to report next week. We are focusing on three key themes in the market, the pre-profit trade, the value trade, and the growth trade. The pre-profit trade, WeWork, set to report for the first time since its SPAC last month. Can the controversial company provide a viable path forward? Then on Tuesday, Walmart, the classic value trade. Can the retail giant provide clues to the inflation story? And finally, Wednesday, NVIDIA, one of the hottest growth stocks of the year. Is the semiconductor company overvalued? 
or can its massive run continue? We'll give you the action, the story, and the trade on all three. Let's kick it off with WeWork, the company having a rough go of things after it initially uh, filed, went public last week via SPAC last month. Shares spiked on its first day of trading but slid more than 11% in just three weeks. Is there any hope for this pre-revenue company that's trying to come out of a, a challenging time, shall we put it? Kate Rooney is here with the story, along with Gina Sh- San- Sanchez, Chantico Global CEO and CNBC contributor for the trade. Kate, what should we expect here? So investors are really looking at net income. At the end of Q2, the company was still losing billions of dollars when it comes to net income. And WeWork really had a tough time during the pandemic. So investors are seeing, can this company cut costs at a rate that will keep up with the valuation? Even though the stock has been trading below $10, analysts are still looking for any key signs to justify its current valuation, at least when you compare it to a company like Regis, it really historically has, has had to convince investors that it's worth more than its shared workplace comp, which is Regis. The other thing is uh, member growth. So occupancy is big. It had told investors at one point that it would reach 70 percent occupancy by the end of this year. So that's really when they break even in terms of adjusted EBITDA. So there are some adjusted metrics. I'm told really look at net losses, though. And this is not the company that Adam Newman built. There is an entirely new leadership really steeped in real estate. So any commentary from the new leadership, sort of the vision going forward for the new version of WeWork? 70% occupancy is the, is the high watermark, if you will, Kate. So what, what are they at right now? What's the latest reading on that number? The latest, that's what they, it uh, looks like they're nowhere near 70%. And at the okay. end of Q2, they said that was the, that was the target for when they would sort of break even here. And so that, that is the high watermark and the goal going forward. And that's really what they've told investors. They haven't come anywhere near that and uh, in terms of occupancy. And they've said that, you know, things are returning to normal. It'll be interesting in sort of a macro view on the recovery from the pandemic yeah. in general, especially in some of the key markets like New York City, places like San Francisco. And so 70 percent really is the target number for WeWork. Right. Gina, you hate this one. Just hate it. Why? Yeah, I hate this one. Yeah. So if you look at WeWork, the problem that they have is that they have negative operating leverage. I mean, literally, they make more money. It causes them to lose more money. That's what I need to hear in order to be convinced that this is a great stock. Um, because, right, and, and it's what, what is encouraging is that the team is a real estate team. If you look at what contributed to that negative operating leverage, it was quite frankly just bad leases, bad, just a bad management strategy of the of the liability side of that business. And so we need to see them turn around that operating leverage into something that at least has a path towards profitability such that every new dollar doesn't actually cause you to spend two more dollars. All right. Thank you, Kate Rooney. Next up, Walmart. The classic retail slash value trade shares have gone nowhere this year, up only two and a half percent as management contends with rising prices and shipping delays. Does the company have enough leverage to deal with supply chain constraints and inflation. Courtney Reagan is here with that story. Courtney, you would think a giant like Walmart, if anybody can deal with supply chain issues, can deal with higher costs, it would be Walmart. Absolutely, Melissa. I think Walmart sort of is the pinnacle of logistics and supply chain management for many, many years. And I think even with all of today's complications, that still remains true. When you have the scale, you have the size, you have the power of Walmart, you're able to do things like chartering your own ships so that you can be in better control of that cargo when it comes in and at what cost. We know that they're already doing that. We know that they have a private truck fleet. So when we hear about the trucker shortage, it possibly 
possibly is something that Walmart is able to navigate a little better than some other players. And so that is always something that Walmart is going to have to strive to do in order to keep its brand promise, that everyday low cost in order to deliver everyday low price. And Walmart has proven that it has the ability and will continue to invest in price, which we know means it will do its best to keep those prices as low as possible for the consumers. And I would make one other point, and we talked mm-hmm. about it a lot when we were talking about the tariff discussion, how much of the inventory that Walmart ends up selling, or really I should say just what is sold at Walmart is food, and so much of it is domestically grown, so they're not actually dealing with these supply chain issues as much as some others might be from overseas. So I hear invest in price, and I think that basically they're giving up on margin, right? They're eating the costs that Courtney was talking about in terms of getting the goods to where they're going. So, Gina, how do you think about it? They're going to make the sale, um, but they're going to make it at a price, so to speak. Yes, they are. But, Melissa, this is a classic operating leverage story. They have managed to create operating leverage at such scale. And the ability to manage the costs of delivery right now are massive. It gives them a massive advantage. And I actually think that that's going to be probably their best, uh, you know, the best selling point is that they aren't having to eat it in margin in the way that others do, right? That's the trick. Courtney, um, I noticed the Black Friday deals already from Walmart in walmart.com. So it's, <laughs> it's starting already. Are these goods already in the warehouses? Is that, should that be assumed? Yes. So I I, I think it should be largely assumed for a player like Walmart. I don't think that can necessarily be true for everyone. I'll give you just one anecdotal example. We were at a toy store in Bedford, Massachusetts, and they are part of a franchise group of stores that send out a holiday catalog. And they said, for example, many of the items in the holiday catalog, they had not yet gotten in and they weren't sure if they were going to get it in. Walmart is not going to do that. They're going to be in much more control of that. So I think it is safe to assume that they have the inventory that they had intended to have. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be able to satisfy every person's order, because in some cases, demand does outstrip supply, even when you're not dealing in a supply chain congestion problem like we are this year. Seems like a big draw to be shopping at a place like Walmart, if you're a parent especially. Courtney, thank you. Finally, NVIDIA, one of the hottest stocks this year, up 130 percent, surpassing names like Berkshire Hathaway and Market Cap, with most of the semi-space going parabolic this year. How much more upside could be left in NVIDIA? Dom Chu is here with the story. Oh, and Dom, it's got all the buzzwords going for it these days. Metaverse. I mean, all kinds of different. We we got everything going on. Right. So if you're asked what in terms of momentum, what it could be from it really is about the gains that we've already seen, about 132%, like you said. It's the seventh most valuable company in America in the S&P, biggest semiconductor company, $760 billion in market cap. Goes without saying, there's a lot of positivity already baked into the stock, and it's been for a while like that, which is why markets are often expecting some volatility around the stock going into and out of earnings worth. Now, here's the current consensus expectation. We're talking about $1.11 in earnings, about $6.8 billion in revenues. That's according to estimates compiled by FactSet. News this morning, we had Wedbush downgrading NVIDIA to a neutral from a prior outperform. They admit that there's no negative catalyst to pin the move to and that the conditions have only improved for NVIDIA in the last few months. They are simply doing it, Melissa, on valuation because it's been a juggernaut. If you ask any trader out there, describe to me your quintessential growth momentum play. It might just be NVIDIA. Yeah, they downgraded, but they raised the price target. So, Gina, how are you feeling about NVIDIA? 
Oh, look, we've owned NVIDIA for a long time, and this is a strong company with a really, really strong value prop um, because their graphics chips are, without a doubt, uh, the dominant player in the market. But the problem is, is that, that, you know, no one can rest on their laurels and you have much cheaper opportunities coming in, basically chipping away at that. You have Apple that's creating a new uh, graphics card, new graphics chip that they have created. Um, and then you have Intel that's basically creating a competitive graphics chip that will go into every PC. And that's where the gamers, that, that, that's the, that's the, you know, computer of choice for gamers. That will be actually real competition. Uh, for NVIDIA. So, you know, when it starts to get this highly priced, you have to start to look at who's coming up the curve. Are you saying you would, would you transfer funds from NVIDIA to an Intel? That seems like a big, a big switch. It it is, but that's actually, we're playing both of those names. They're both owned in our portfolio. So it's not as though we're making a choice either or. We like NVIDIA, we like their business model, and we love the fact that they've created a moat. Um, but, you know, we cannot ignore the fact that there are other ways to play this. All right. Dom, thank you. Dom Chu, and our thanks as well to Gina Sanchez of Chantico. Up next, shares of Deer slightly higher today and up more than 8% over the past month. Despite the ongoing worker strike, we'll get the latest and why the standoff between the company and the UAW could hit farmers in their wallets. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Thousands of John Deere workers have been on strike for a month now. It is the biggest private sector strike of the U.S. since 2019, and there is still no resolution in sight. Seema Modi has been following the story, joins us now with the latest on what it could mean for the prices of Deere products, I would think, higher. Definitely higher, (laughs) Melissa. I'm told a meeting did take place last night, but alas, no resolution yet. The 10,000 union workers continue to hold out for a better pay package. Deere has indicated that its latest offer, including a 10 percent wage hike, $8,500 bonus that was rejected by UAW workers last week is its best and final offer. But the union workers, they want more. John Deere's stock price has more than doubled since the pandemic began. Um, So there's sort of a sense that we sacrificed. We were told we were essential. Now it's time to basically put your money where your mouth is in terms of these union contracts coming up. Now, in the event this strike continues, John Deere is making contingency plans, leaning on salaried workers and its international factories to produce extra parts needed by farmers here in the U.S. as agriculture demand just remains incredibly high. Analysts at J.P. Morgan say Deere will have to further raise prices of its farm equipment like tractors by around 1.5 percent to account for higher labor costs. And it does come amid a rise in worker strikes across the nation at Kellogg in Michigan, healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente in California. In fact, stories on union workers are up 40 percent year over year, according to Bank of America. That's the second highest in data history dating back to 2011. And Deere is not the only industrial that is dependent on union workers. There's Oshkosh, Caterpillar with 17 percent of employees and CNH Industrial, another ag equipment company with 14 percent of employees that are tied to the union, Melissa. I would think all of those companies are watching this very carefully. Are there contracts up at other companies um, so that they could be in position to have the same thing going on? Yeah, so these contracts come up yearly, right? These mm-hmm. negotiations take, pla- take place on an annual basis. So uh, similar conversations, I imagine, are happening at other industrials that are watching this worker movement that is taking place across the nation. And by the way, political consequences potentially as well. Less than a year till the midterms, there's qu- questions about uh, the House flipping. And these strikes are happening in politically important states like Iowa, Kansas, and Illinois.
right. Seema, thank you. Thank you. Seema Modi. Coming up, inflation is running hot, but one portfolio manager has names with dividend growth, he says, can outpace it. We'll reveal them next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks rebounding today, but are still on track to snap a five-week winning streak as inflation fears rattle markets. Our next guest has some stocks that he says have enough dividend growth to outpace inflation. Joining us now with some picks, Larry Cordisco, Portfolio Manager of the Osterweiss Growth and Income Fund. Larry, good to see you. Nice to be here. Thanks, Melissa. So let's get this straight. It's not just that they have a, a high dividend yield or a dividend yield that you like, but it's that the dividend yield will actually grow faster than inflation. So what is your assumption on inflation for next year? Well, boy, that's a tough one. And I, we think it probably comes down from the levels it's at now, but may also or probably does stay persistently higher than what we've seen in the last you know, five or 10 years for sure. Okay, let's run through some of these stocks because I know our viewers want to hear them. Um, Visa, if you can talk me through how you think about a company raising its dividend and what makes you think that the growth in the dividend will outpace inflation. Let's let's use Visa as the example. No, that's for, so so Visa has actually increased its dividend by more than three times over the uh, three times the dividend has gone up three x over the last five years. So it's already a company that it's got a history of increasing its dividend. If you look at where the business can accelerate over the next twelve to eighteen months, they have a lot of tailwinds. You know, headwinds turn into tailwinds for Visa. And specifically, we're talking about international travel and cross-border spending. They make three to four times as much money on those transactions versus what they do domestically. So as travel comes back, and it's only 60% of what it had been pre-pandemic, we think that's a really big tailwind to Visa increasing its earnings growth, which will translate into higher dividends. UNP, obviously there's a need to get goods places these days, Larry, and, and pricing uh, remains with the transporter at this point in time. Um, how do you think about UNP in terms of if, you know, let's say it didn't have a dividend yield, would you like it as a company? Are you confident that the stock price itself will go higher even without the added bonus of the dividend yield? That's a great question, Melissa, because that underpins the, our investment thesis for any of these names we're talking about. Earnings growth has to happen for dividend growth to follow, right? So, so your question is right on the mark. And to answer it, yes. If you look at what's gone on with the pandemic and all the supply chain problems we've had, Union Pacific's faced a tremendous amount of headwinds. In fact, if you look at their premium businesses like intermodal and autos, the volumes are down 8% or 9%, I think, year over year. Those headwinds turn into tailwinds as we get into inventory replenishment in 2022. And one of the things that we thought was really interesting, if you just look at the macro economy, inventory levels now compared to GDP are significantly lower, 25 to 30 percent versus what they were in the 90s. This long term headwind against inventory levels in the United States probably reverses now that the pandemic has laid bare a lot of problems with just in time inventory and supply chains. Right. We think there's a multi-year story with a, with a company like Union Pacific. All right, CVS is another dividend player payer that you like, but I want to skip to AMD because it doesn't have a dividend, and you let that slip in there. We're not going to let that go without a question. So why did you put that in there, um, and do you think that its growth is just so spectacular that you don't need the promise of the dividend yield to help you buy it? Yeah, that, we've liked AMD for a long time. Uh, we've called it the Intel Slayer in the past, and we think that the data center story for AMD accelerates in 2022. Uh, market share gains against Intel will accelerate. And we also think 
AMD becomes very well positioned to get a lot of market share in the GPU, the NVIDIA market in the data center. And what they have is a really important competitive advantage. When you look at GPU accelerators, basically it's x86 chips like Intel makes and AMD makes and GPUs talking together. Well, AMD makes both the x86 chip and the GPU chip. That's a powerful combination. We think there's a lot of cloud adoption on the come for them. And we're not sure that's really priced into the shares. So you think it's undervalued still? We think business will be better than people expect, uh, and the stock price will respond. All right. Larry, good to see you. Thanks for your picks. Larry Cordisco with the Osterweiss Growth and Income Fund. Coming up, the most expensive art collection ever sold. Hits the auction block next week. We'll get the preview of a billion-dollar art week and how new money could power prices higher next. The exchange is back right after this. Welcome back. Art investors gearing up for huge auctions next week with nearly $2 billion worth of works hitting the block. And with newfound wealth, thanks to the surge in the likes of stocks and cryptocurrencies, buyers should be ready to pay a premium. Robert Frank joins us now with that story. Robert. Melissa Christie's just in the last few minutes passing the $1 billion mark for the week. Sotheby's another billion dollars to go. So we're going to blow past that $2 billion. Last night was the biggest auction at Christie's in over seven years. Now, the star was a portrait by Gustav Kaibot that went for $53 million. That was way above the estimate. Dealers and collectors say the combination of low interest rates, massive wealth creation from, as you mentioned, stocks and crypto, and art as a hedge against inflation is creating record demand. I see the market as extremely strong, and I see the demand for works of this quality has never been more acute. I think coming off of the pandemic, this a lot of the newfound wealth and a lot of the structure of what we, what we are seeing in Asia and elsewhere shows a real flight to quality that we've never seen before. Now, the big headlines will be Monday night when the most expensive collection ever to auction comes up at Sotheby's. That's the Maclow collection expected to go for more than $600 million. Let's take a look at some of those highlights. The Giacometti sculpts are here going for perhaps up to $80 million. And an Andy Warhol that Linda Maclow bought in 1995 for $850,000, that is set to go from between 40 and $60 million. By the way, for those investors counting at home, that is eight times better than the S&P over that same period. Melissa? Wow, that's quite, quite an outperformance, Robert. Is there any sense of where this wealth is coming from, where the buyers are coming from geographically? So China is really strong. Everyone thought with all the sort of difficulties in China right now that we wouldn't see many buyers in Asia. That is super strong, but it's mainly in the U.S., And what I'm hearing is a lot of younger buyers, people under 40 who really weren't collecting or bidding prior to the pandemic. We don't know. Maybe that's crypto wealth. Maybe it's stock wealth. But there is a whole new group of collectors that started buying online and is now going for these big trophy works. So it's all across the board, but especially strong in North America. Wait a minute. Those younger buyers aren't going for NFTs as opposed to Giacometti? Oh, they're buying those, too. They're buying the sneakers. They're buying the board apes. They're buying they, they'll take a board ape and a Picasso. They're buying everything. D- diversified art portfolio. Robert, good to see you. Thanks so much. <laughs> you- All those art auctions. What a fun beat. <laughs> that does it for us on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 